Thank you for downloading the Root Simple Podcast. Our topic this week is wildcrafted drinks and cocktails. And our guest is Emily Hahn, who is a writer, recipe developer, educator, and herbalist based in Los Angeles. She's the author of Wild Drinks and Cocktails and the communications director for LearningHerbs.com. Listen through the end of this show for a chance to win a copy of the book. Well, Kelly and I are here with uh, author Emily Hahn, author of a new book called Wild Drinks and Cocktails. Welcome, Emily, to the Root Simple Podcast. Hi. Great to have you on. Great to be on. Thanks. We actually met through the Master Food Preserver, the late Master Food Preserver program in L.A. We were Master Food Preservers and went through that program. And now you're a new author. Um, I'm very excited about this book and uh, because both Kelly and I, Kelly's with me here, um, are also uh, occasional wild crafters and foragers, more Kelly than, than I. But one, one if you could say a little just general introduction to, to what this book is about. Yes, well, the book Wild Drinks and, and Cocktails is a book of recipes using foraged, fresh, and healthful ingredients. Um, ingredients you might find foraging, wild crafting um, from your garden, your farmer's market, or even your grocery store. But many of the drinks have, um, have a healthful angle to them. Cool. And um, I think there's some general categories, right, that we want to go over that, that are in the book. Well, no, wait a second. Kelly's pointing at me. What, what do you see? Go ahead, <laughs> Well, I Kelly. wanted to talk about wildcrafting versus foraging. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. yeah because yeah. There's, there's, these are interesting terms. I think it'd be worthwhile to unpack them a little bit. Emily calls herself a wildcrafter, uh, but like somebody describing this book might say, oh, this is a book that focuses on making drinks with foraged ingredients. And so I wondered what the difference is between foraging and wildcrafting. Yes, well, I use both terms, and I, anyone is welcome to use either term that they feel comfortable with. Uh, for me, when I, um, about 10 years or so, started becoming more and more interested in gathering plants in the wild and using them to make food or drinks or medicine, um, for me, it was really, I was really interested in not only using the plants themselves um, for myself, but looking at the way the, the plants um, were part of a larger ecosystem. So where they grew, who else might depend on these plants for food or shelter, birds and squirrels, bees, other insects. So I was really interested in um, in the process of gathering them, deepening my relationship with the world around me and understanding how it works and being being responsible and mindful while I was gathering that I was I was um, being a good a good steward of of those lands. Um, so in my process, I came across a lot of people who would call themselves foraging or information about foraging. Um, but I, I was really searching for others who were looking at that that um, more holistic view of using plants in the wild. And I found herbalists who tended to use the term wildcrafting. So um, for them, you know, wildcrafting encompassed something, something larger, something deeper. And it also was not only about gathering the plants, but what to do with them and, and um, having that craft aspect to it. Not to say that people, foragers, um, don't consider those things, but I really, I just loved the term wildcrafting. I thought it, 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 uh, it really encompassed everything that, that I was interested in. Now, have you always been a person who likes to go out and in the wilderness and gather things, or is this a relatively new thing? I know before we began rolling, you were 
telling us about how important you think it is that people have a connection with nature. Is this a way that in your own life you've been able to do that? Yes. Um, I think I grew up um, hiking a lot and spending time outside. Uh, my parents were gardeners, and we, we would spend, spend a lot of time outdoors. But um, then I think as I, as I went to college and, and got older, I lived in a lot of urban environments, and I really kind of forgot about a lot of that. And then I moved to Los Angeles about 13 years ago. And strangely enough, it was in L.A. where I became more interested in nature, um, I think both because my um, my boyfriend, now husband, um, he grew up here and spending a lot of time out, outdoors hiking. So he would, as a way to introduce me to his home when I moved here, um, we spent a lot of time in the mountains or the desert or on the coasts. And um, so I was learning about this new environment where I lived. Um, so to me, that gave me a sense of home and also, um, but, you know, living in the middle of the city, you know, we didn't always have access to these wild lands to hike in, but I would find little patches of, you know, a vacant lot or a little strip of, of plants near my apartment. Um, so that became a way just of connecting to where I lived and finding those little pieces of nature wherever I was. We're in a part of L.A., uh, northeast L.A., that that's intensely urban. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of vacant lots and things. What are the sorts of of plants that you've been able to find in what most people would think of as a very urban place? Um, Oh, all kinds of things. So we have a a lot of what people would consider weeds um, that you might find all over the place, really. Um, Things like um, dandelions and chickweed, um, mustards, a lot of wild fennel here in LA, actually. So... um, a lot of kind of those those weedy plants that were maybe um, invasive or you know didn't weren't originally from here, um, as well as you know I'll find native plants too. We have you know sages and and um, pink peppercorns, which are not native. Those are also another in, invasive tree, but they're all over. Um, and then I'll find um, lots that people may have planted at at one time um, and they've been forgotten. So you'll find citrus or even pomegranates. There was a lot with the quince tree, which was very exciting to me. Currants, things like that. Also our native elder elderberries and elderflowers, which are really abundant all over. So it's, it was just incredible the, the amount of, of, of life that you could find um, in an urban environment. But for the book, I know you said you wanted to make sure that there were things in here for all of North Americans, right? So how did you decide on what plants to include in the recipes in the book and which ones to, to not? So I, I kind of started with a lot of my favorites um, that I would find, but in order to try to make the book um, accessible to, to a lot of people, I would, I would go through other foraging books you know, written for national audience or international audience even, or books that were regional, like focusing on the, the Midwest or the Northeast, and just to get a sense of, of what they had. I would also think about my travels, um, because I'm, wherever I go, I'm always curious to see what other people are gathering in the wild, so I would think back to that. Um, I would even look at like USDA plant maps and, and, and try to make sure that I picked plants that had a wide range. So they might not be everywhere, but that I, you know, a, a large amount of people would be able to use them. And then, so that's, yeah, that's mostly what I did. I also wanted to make sure that there were plants people could order online, uh, spices and dried herbs and things like that. So if they didn't have access to the the fresh ones, that they could find it somehow. Um, and there are also a lot of ingredients in the book that most people might not find in the wild. Um, ginger, you know, even oranges or pomegranates. Um, but you could find them in a, in a grocery store or a market. Yeah, I like that. There's uh, plenty of stuff to do, even if you can't get outside, or maybe you're snowbound on yeah. the East Coast or somewhere <laughs> like that. Um, 
you know, what do we know about that here? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, you can go to the grocery store and there are, there are recipes for things made with, you know, your basic berries and cherries. And like you mentioned, ginger or turmeric, which you can find at health food stores, raw, uh, that kind of stuff. So yeah, there's, there's a nice range of ingredients. It's all nature-based, but it's, uh, you don't have to be um, really intrepid and you know, go right. out in the mountains and, and identify odd weeds, you know, <laughs> to use this book. It's, it's, it's very accessible. Yeah, exactly. I think it, you know anyone could could jump into it and find some things that they can make, um, regardless of, of where you are. Yeah, it seems like you could probably make something the day you get it. You know, because most <laughs> people have some of the stuff in their fridge or in their cabinet or in their backyard, Maybe, right? Yes. I mean, there's <laughs> things you can grow as well. Yeah, there's a you know a lot of um, herbs and you know lemon balm and mint and things like that that you might have in your garden or you could very easily start growing if you're inspired. Uh, you mentioned it in passing, but maybe we should back up and, and just talk a little bit about the ethics of foraging. So what would you say about, you know, how, what, what does responsible gathering look like? Mm-hmm. Well, um, number one, I mean, you want to be safe yourself um, and you know, make sure that you, you um, can identify 100% or 110, 120% um, that you know um, uh, you can identify it so that you are keeping yourself and and your your loved ones um, safe, but also, and making sure that you're gathering things that haven't been exposed to to chemicals or run agricultural runoff, things like that, and then spending some time thinking about this plant's role in the ecosystem. So you you might find something wild and not even gather it that day um, because you're going to start learning more about it, observing it in its environment. Um, doing research, reading about it, and finding out, you know, are there, are there insects that rely on this plant um, for, for pollen, or are, you know, birds are, are going to eat the berries, or if you gather the flowers, then the plant might not um, later have fruit, and is there someone, um, you know, a creature, or, or people, you know, who are going to um, um, de- depend on that later. So um, thinking about those, those kinds of things, and it's not going to be immediately apparent, um, and it sounds like it might be complicated, but I think the process of doing that is that's what deepens you uh, deepens your relationship to the place where you are you know, and to the individual plant yes as that's well, a, yeah exactly um, there's probably ways in which even if you don't know much about the the community around the plant do you have when you teach people do you talk about like not taking more than a third of a plant or is there any kind of mm-hmm. arbitrary number like if you if you're not gathering all the blooms off of a particular elderberry <laughs> tree, even though you want them really badly. <laughs> you know, um, if you leave some, like you, mm-hmm. do you have like a, a ratio for leaving plant matter behind? So there's a, a general rule of thumb where you might not want to take, you know, more than like 10 or 20%. Um, so it's, it's good to kind of have that as a, a general way of thinking, but it's always case by case too, as you're um, observing a place. And I talk about the book too, you know, if you're not familiar with this, you can just go and start observing any plant, you know, whether it's, it's, um, just a little dandelion outside your, outside your doorstep or, you know, anything and just start looking at it, how, um, you know, what kind of sunlight it uses or what's its water source and just, just kind of spend a little time with it and thinking about those things. So you don't have to be an ecologist or or have to, you know, like spend time in these like, you know, crazy wild places, but you can start learning those things wherever you are. Speaking of crazy wild places, you had a great story (laughs) about, uh, (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's about it's about being about aware. It, it actually yeah. sort of, you know, you're, she's talking about being aware of, um, you know, being having relationship to the place and plant, but also perhaps not getting too caught up 
in your obsession with the plants and, and being aware of the, the larger environment and, and your own safety within the larger environment when you're, when you're working out in the yes, wild. So definitely. you were, you were out in the wild with a friend and you were looking for elderberries. Right? Yes. Um, yeah, we were, um, we were driving outside of LA and in this sort of remote area, um, on our, on this hunt for, it was elderberry season and, and we, you know, go there often looking for, for berries. But so we were, we were driving out and in the distance saw the most massive elderberry tree, you know, we'd ever seen before. It was probably five times bigger and it was lush and full than a typical one. So we, um, we pulled over, got our, our, um, gathering bags and, and we're very excited, um, and started making a beeline for the tree. And we kind of noticed that, you know, maybe kind of out of the corner of our eye, there was sort of a dilapidated shack, you know, kind of in, on the on the premises, but we didn't really pay attention. We were we were focused on this this harvest, and seemingly out of thin air, all of a sudden, these um, black SUVs just kind of materialized um, with these men jumping out of it, um, you know, wearing vests, you know, with, with uh, firearms, and uh, you know, this was not this is not your um, kind of uh, you know, typical nature day, yeah. You know, the, Wearing your flowy dress, you know, tra- traipsing around the meadows with your your basket, you know, <laughs> situation. Um, so, um, the, you know, they they jumped out and uh, yelled at us to get out of the way, and we were kind of stunned and didn't, didn't know what was going on. You know, I think at first the th- thought running out of my head in my mind was, you know, oh, we're not supposed to be, you know, foraging for elderberries right here. You know, like <laughs> we've been caught. You know, um, the Forest Service got really yeah. serious all yeah. of a sudden. <laughs> um, you know, we've been busted. <laughs> um, and um, but the, suddenly, you know, these um, pit bulls came running out of this this shack that you know we barely noticed, and they were tased, and there was a man on the ground, you know, with his being cuffed, and we realized that we had stumbled into the middle of a meth bust, a meth lab, um, which probably <laughs> explains why the you know nearby elder tree was was so um, full flourishing, so you know after the runoff from the. The lab, so it, you know, we really um, <laughs> we were. Uh, it was a, it was a really really good reminder to be um, mindful um, and aware of where you are. Um, you know, not only to to be aware of, of nature and the environment, but um, anything else that that might be out there. You know, um, people um, <laughs> um, and you know, keep keep yourself safe um, wherever wherever you may be. Foraging. I have to just stop and say we're, we're at Emily's house, and uh, which is up um, kind of against a, a more of a wild slope, of course. So she's got you, you look out the window and you feel like you're in the country. Uh, and there is this fat, fat squirrel <laughs> who who is hanging out right outside the window while we talk. And it's really distracting. I keep seeing him. He's literally, oh, he just oh. jumped into a potted plant <laughs> or a hanging plant. Now he's swinging in the ferns. <laughs> <laughs> so this whole conversation, there's this creature like four feet away from us going, hey, hey, look at me. I'm cute. I'm fluffy. Look at my tail. Look at my tail. It's huge. It's huge. <laughs> it's just a nice uh, reminder that there there is life all around us, even in the city. Look at him. He's crazy. Well, you know, we moved here about five months ago, and um, there are a lot of um, wild California walnut trees in the backyard. And that's something that I would forage a lot in regular years but as you know we've, we're going through a really serious drought here and um, when I first moved here I thought oh I'm going to gather these these walnuts and, and make something but I started to notice that it just um, the trees weren't as healthy as they should have been there probably weren't as many 
nuts as um, there usually would, would be. And I noticed that there were these squirrels in the backyard, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll you know leave the walnuts for them. So you know, there there was a case where I might have really um, wanted to to gather something, but um, I felt like the the right thing to do would be to to leave it to someone else. So I can make another drink, you know, that I don't need to make the, the walnut drink. <laughs> There's a lot of really interesting types of recipes in this book, and in a way, you're reviving. Um, I guess 19th century, maybe earlier practices that have that have kind of come into the cocktail world in the past uh, two or three years now. Uh, why don't we break down some of those categories? Like we have oh, yeah. shrubs and switchels and cordials. Yeah, I think and- for the uninitiated, it can be sort of confusing, these terms that you see them about. Maybe you're in an artisanal cocktail shop or in a really nice restaurant or cafe, and they'll have shrubs or switchels. And then there's shrubs and switchels are two that are easy to get mixed up. And then you also work with oxymels and cordials. So let's let's just break down some of those those categories. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole chapter in the book that's devoted to um, shrubs, switchels, and oxymels, which are all vinegar-based drinks, um, which might sound a little strange um, to have a, a, a drink made with vinegar, but it was something that has actually been around for a very long time. Um, oxymels um, were actually originally a medicinal preparation that um, it... Basically, it um, it means acid and honey. Um, so they were um, combination of, of vinegar, honey, and then often herbs that would be used um, for various um, ailments, but particularly um, congestion and, and coughs, um, upper respiratory um, type um, situations. Uh, Hippocrates would make oxymels, and so. Um, so there's this long tradition of um, people drinking vinegar, um, both because the, the vinegar itself could have healing properties as well as um, it could be used to draw out um, medicinal constituents of herbs. It could also be used to preserve things like herbs or fruits um, when people didn't have refrigeration um, or other means of, of um, preserving these things. Or so, like carrying that flavor. Right. So like if yeah. you steep raspberries in vinegar... After raspberry season, right. you can taste you raspberries. Can have that you can't raspberry actually either. eat the raspberries anymore like we can because we get them frozen and imported, but you can have raspberry flavor in your life. Right, right. right. Um, yeah. Flavors and, and things like vitamin C, you know, like mm. sailors would take um, vinegar drink shrubs, um, you know, on, on the seas with them to, you know, <laughs> not get scurvy. Um, so, um, so yeah, you had um, oxymels, which kind of started um, as a medicinal thing, and uh, herbalists, you know, still use them today, and they can also be quite delicious. Um, and then um, shrubs, which are um, vinegar-based drinks that have fruit in them. So, like you were mentioning, like the raspberries, um, or you could pretty much any type of fruit, you know, peaches, berries, watermelons, apples, anything you can think of, um, you can um, steep in in vinegar. And so the vinegar takes on the flavors and the colors and sometimes the healthful properties of, of those ingredients. And then you can combine that with a sweetener, um, sugar, honey, anything you want um, to make a syrup. And that's your shrub syrup. And um, you can then use that syrup, uh, mix it with some fizzy water and make a great soda. And that, that tanginess is really refreshing. You know, I think we've been so overloaded with sweet flavors um, in our modern culture that it can um, be really fun to have something you know, a little bit different. Um, in, the t- in the like temperance period, people would, would drink shrubs because they couldn't have alcohol, but it would, it would just be like an interesting kind of refreshing zippy flavor um, that they could have. Um, it just struck me that it's also, uh, lemons used to be really expensive and hard to get. We're real yeah. spoiled, especially here in Southern California with mm-hmm. our lemons. But um, 
to get that acidic right, quality, right. you didn't have, you couldn't just put a squeeze of lemon in your water. Exactly. You know, that, that just didn't mm-hmm. happen unless you were, I don't know, Louis the 15th or something. <laughs> you know, so you, yeah. yeah, vinegar was our acid. Right, right. right. Yeah. So yeah, that was a great way to, um, to, to bring some acidity to a drink. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have switchels, which... Um, the origins are a little bit fuzzy, but they probably um, came about in the um, Caribbean um, in the 17th century and um, were made, um, it's kind of like a, a shrub, but um, it has ginger in it, um, which gives it a little like heat and spice in addition to that tanginess. Um, and probably originally were made with the molasses from the sugar cane, um, maybe sometimes some rum. Um, and then as the uh, molasses trade um traveled to New England, um, people would make it with the sweeteners that they had there, like maple syrup. Um, there's still actually tradition in Vermont today where people make switchels with maple syrup. Um, it became known as haymaker's punch um, because people would, would drink it as um, to quench their thirst during a harvest. Um, mm. So it's, it's kind of like a... Um, it's like our modern day you know, Gatorade or a sports drink or something. You you could drink um, the vinegar to kind of re- revive you. Mm. So those are some some fun vinegar based drinks. And in the book, I have variations. You know, I kind of have like a what you might think of as a, a standard um, switchel with the ginger and the molasses. But then variations you can make it with turmeric. You could um, you know add some lime juice. You could even make it with a pomegranate based molasses. Um, so there's lots of ways to get creative with it. And ginger and turmeric are both really, really healthful, healthful foods, right? So they, uh, ginger particularly tastes good, obviously. Yeah. So, uh, uh, turmeric tastes good too, but in a different way. But ginger is a classic, you know, we all love our ginger ale, mm-hmm. um, but people don't think about them in healing terms. So a lot of these drinks seem to have sort of a sly healing <laughs> sort of undercurrent to them. Um, they're, what do turmeric and ginger do for you? Um, so they're both anti-inflammatory. Um, they're, I mean, they're great in general but if you're you know if you've been working out you know and um you could you could have that um you know if you have arthritis um things like that um they can be very helpful um they can also be great for um colds and flus you know if you're if you're starting to come down with something to get your your uh, your system re- <laughs> revved up to to fight the um the virus yeah it's interesting because ginger is very warming uh, yes it's very warm but they drank it in the hot fields as well. Yeah. Well, it, if you, um, you know, I encourage you to like drink some, um, make some uh, t- ginger tea and just kind of sit and see how you see what happens, how you feel. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, as you start to warm up, then you might start sweating. Your pores could open up, you know, and then that'll, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately cool you start off. cooling you down. Yeah. yeah <laughs> interesting. Now, what else can you do with getting back to shrubs and switchels? Mm-hmm. How, how are ways that you can use them other than as just, a, um, you know, on their own? So, um, so they're kind of like, you know, I say they're great for the, you know, the whole family, you know, for a kid, you could, you can mix it in with some, some, uh, sparkling water and make a soda, but you could also, um, use them to make co- co- cocktails. So, um, a really, um, easy way is just, you just take, um, three quarters of a shrub syrup, pretty much any one and combine that with two ounces of a liquor. Again, you know, it could be your choice. It could be gin, vodka, whiskey, rum, um, Combine those in a in a glass, and then pour some fizzy water over that, and you just have a really really easy shrub cocktail. And so, and you can you know adjust that depending on on the particular flavors, um, adjust it to your liking. That's the thing with a lot of these these um, syrups and vinegars and drinks is they're they're really customizable and adaptable. So if you like things a little more sweet, um, like my husband does, you know, then he'll, you know, add another couple of tablespoons of the syrup. I like things on the less sweet side. So I'll just do like a little splash. And so you can really, um, make drinks that, that are to your own tastes. 
And what are cordials? We mentioned those before. Yeah. So uh, the book has cordials in them too. And there are a couple different definitions of a cordial. Um, in the U.S., we tend to think of a cordial as like a, um, a sweetened liqueur. Um, in the book, I actually use the definition that is currently still used in the U.K., which is a cordial is a syrup that doesn't have alcohol in it. And that that term originally, um, it originally, a cordial was a, a syrup that was good for the heart. So you think the, the um, Latin word core for the heart. So it would be a syrup that would, um, maybe it would be, uh, it would stimulate circulation. It would uh, warm you up or, you know, might even have um, herbs that would be good for both the physical and the emotional heart. So I have like a, a hawthorn cordial in the book, which is, um, hawthorn is an herb that's kind of used to address both the physical and the, the emotional, spiritual aspects of of the heart. So um, it's essentially a sugar, like it's it's stuff stuff. <laughs> technically speaking, it's stuff in a sugar syrup. Is that right, right, right. And as opposed to like a vinegar base, like correct. the, the switchels. Yeah, it would sugar. be a, a sugar based syrup, or you can use honey or other other. Sweeteners. So you take some sort of syrupy, either honey or like a, or a mm-hmm. simple syrup. And right. then you are infusing that with the herbs or fruits of your choice. Right. Now, what about alcohol infusions? Yes. Well, we do have those in the book, too. Um, uh, <laughs> Let's not so. forget the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so alcohol is a great way um, to, again, kind of like the vinegar, you could um, preserve flavors um, you know, originally or use them. Um, people would originally steep herbs and spices in alcohol to make um make herbal remedies, um, but they can also just be really delicious. Um, and you can, um, usually from a period of maybe a week to a couple of months, steep different herbs or fruits or spices in a, um, a liquor or a spirit, um, commonly vodka, cause that's just going to be really neutral flavor, but you can, you can steep them in, you know, in whiskey or in gin or whatever, whatever you like. And, um, you're going to f- flavor the spirit. Um, it'll take on, you know, oftentimes fun colors, um, and tastes, and then you can use those, um, you know, either sip them neat as they are, you can sweeten them to make a liqueur, or you could use them in, in cocktails. Do you have a favorite neutral vodka that you use? I tend to use uh, Smirnoff or Sky. Um, some people talk about using kind of like bottom shelf, which I like to go like a little step above that. It d- definitely doesn't need to be an expensive um, top shelf because you're infusing it with different flavors. Um, but I, I'll, you know, whatever's on sale. You know, <laughs> um, so I'll, you know, I'll use one of those. Um, but you can also, in, as far as the proof, um, I use 80 proof for a lot of things. Um, sometimes you use like a hundred proof or an Everclear or something stronger, and that's going to infuse faster and be and be more potent. But it's often, you know, it'll be much more harsh going down. So then you're going to want to sweeten it. And sometimes, you know, you don't don't want to sweeten things. So, um, so I'll just use an 80 proof vodka. When you're infusing things like uh, fruits, do you work with the, you know, do you filter that out? And do you, what do you do with the fruit? Can you, is that useful in um, any way? So, it, so I'll, I'll, uh, filter it out using a strainer, oftentimes like a um, a coffee filter or a cheesecloth or a, like a flour sackcloth or something just to get those little particles and you know bits of fruit out. Um, so you strain your drink and then you have this leftover fruit. I say taste it. Sometimes it's all the flavor has been sucked out of it and it's gone into the liquor and it's really not not usable. So you can throw it in the compost. Um, but sometimes it's really good, especially if it's been a shorter infusion. Um, cherries are often really good. And then you have these great, you know, boozy berries and you can use them, um, use that in a drink or, you know, put it on your ice cream or a, even a, a, like a cheese plate sometimes. Or So just taste it and, and see what you think. 
Actually, I have one self-serving question, <laughs> and that is, weirdly, one of the most popular posts on our blog is what to do with prickly pears. Uh-huh. And I know that you have something in your book about that. Yes. Boy, the prickly pear fruit, I should the say, fruit. or tuna in, in Spanish. Yeah, that's just such a fun one because it, the color is so brilliant. And, and I mean, there are a lot of different species, so some of them are going to be more um, bright pink or deeper red or orange, um, but they, and the flavors can vary too. But uh, in the book, I have a recipe for prickly pear syrup, and that you can use. Uh, I have a, a cocktail recipe in there using this, the, um, the syrup and the tequila and ginger beer. Um, so and then that just makes a you know, really vibrant, refreshing um, cocktail. You can also, uh, use, because it's in a syrup form, it's going to sweeten whatever you add it to. So you could throw that into some, some lemonade or something and have something um, colorful and unusual. Um, you can, you know, pretty much any, anything you can think of uh, to use the syrup for. Do you happen to know if any cactus fruits are poison? That's a hard question, oh. I know. Because sometimes people are walking around, they're like, oh, is that a, you know, if, if you're, if you live in the Southwest, like we do, mm-hmm. then there's the cactus, there's the fruiting season for cactus and right. there's the prickly pear, which is ficus indica, I mm-hmm. believe, um, that we have in our yard. Uh, but then I, I'll, when I'm out on my walks, I'll see other, like maybe their beaver tail cactus. I'm not sure what they are. And right. they have these beautiful fruits on them. And I think, mm-hmm. huh, can I eat those? <laughs> Birds are eating those. What are yeah. those? <laughs> I'm not aware of any others that... That are would be you know poisonous for you. Um, you know, I'm not going to definitively say no. You know, definitely, <laughs> definitely look at um, you know do your research um, yeah, and look it up. But in in general, um, the ones that I see in my neighborhood, they may not always be delicious, but you, know, you can give them a try and, and see see what you think. <laughs> One thing that is safe to um, eat, I think, generally is is pine, and that, I, yes. I thought that was a a really fun one. You have a, a recipe for pine syrup in the book because pines and various conifers are almost universal. I, I don't know where you know in well, I don't even even south of the equator. I don't know pines. <laughs> they're very they're they're everywhere, uh, and so I mean I know just I don't have any pines in my yard, but I know if I if I walk a block, I'll go buy three in other people's yards mm-hmm. that I could steal. <laughs> um, so, uh, but a lot of people probably don't think of pine trees as a as a food or beverage. And right. So could you talk about your pine syrup and what you do with that? Yeah, that and and like you said that's a fun one because most people have access to some sort of pine or another conifer wherever they live. So again, do your do your own research and and make sure, but um in general any conifer is going to be edible except the yew. So and the yew is uh it's a wonderful tree. I know they don't do you see yews out here? I've never seen a yew I see in them grown ornamentally, you know, and occasionally in someone's yard. Um, and those are the ones that have, not all year round, but they'll have little red berries They look kind them. of like raspberries, actually, yeah, sitting yeah. on them. And they're often grown in graveyards because that's, they're that's extraordinarily right. long-lived. Yeah. Uh, so they have a nice sort of haunted quality <laughs> to them. But they're deadly poisonous. Yeah. So, so, um, so you know, learn what the yew looks like and, and don't... Um, avoid the yew. Yeah, avoid that one. <laughs> <laughs> but other but, than that, yeah, you can pine have... Pine trees... Um, Fir, Douglas fir, spruce, you know, all of those you can use. Um, and um, a lot of them will have kind of a, a citrusy, maybe lemony, sometimes orangey flavor to them. Um, also sometimes resiny. And different times of year, they'll taste different too. So in the spring, um, you can get like the more bright green tips, and those are probably going to be more citrusy, brighter tasting. And then later in the in the year, in the autumn, um, the the needles will taste um, more resinous, kind of like your you know Christmas tree flavor. Um, so 
and from tree to tree, they can really vary too. Some are delicious, some are not. Some taste really tannic, and you know you want to spit it out right away. And you know others are like transcendent when you taste it. So, um, so I encourage you. You know, once once you've identified it as a, not a you, <laughs> um, um, take a little nibble. You know, um, just take a take a little needle off and and taste it. And if it if it tastes good and interesting to you, um, you can use it to make drinks. Um, there's a recipe for um, it's pine syrup, but again, you could use one of the other conifers. And um, again. The syrup you can use to, to sweeten things. You, know, you could pour it in some some tea or lemonade or um, a soda. Anything else you want to sweeten. I really like using it in an old fashioned cocktail. Um, you could do it with um, with a bourbon, or I like it with the pine needles. I like doing a rye because it's a little bit spicier, um, and um, that's just a really fun. It's not going to hit someone over the head, you know, that, that I'm like they're drinking, drinking pine a, you know, a Christmas tree or something. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it just gives it just kind of a really interesting, um, unique flavor to it. Um, and pine yeah. has some of that, um, again, the sly, the sly medicine. Yeah, too, right? exactly. Yeah. So yeah, like a lot of these, these recipes, you know, they're not going to be, um, uh, you know, hardcore medicine, but it's a way that you can get those things into your daily life. Um, that's in, that's in a fun way. So, um, pine has a lot of vitamin C in it and, um, it's also, um, it's another one of those expectorant herbs that can be great for, um, chest congestion. So you can, um, take the syrup straight or, or, you know, put it in some hot water or make a tea, tea with it and, and help get the, get things moving along mm. in your chest. Pine would be good in honey then too, wouldn't it? Oh, as a kind of, it's uh, delicious in honey. And also good for coughs and chest things. So you yeah. have a spoonful of honey when you're feeling really miserable. Yeah. yeah I'll just pine infuse honey. like pine or, or fir needles you know, mm. in honey. And then, yeah. And then it's, uh, you know, it's, it's medicine that's really fun to take. And then you, you, you'll just be eating it all year round really. Um, <laughs> you would be sitting on the couch in your, in yeah. your bathrobe with the yeah. jar of honey. <laughs> totally. <in a> <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of of the of the slide medicine, um, especially um, you know if you have family members who, if you're interested at all in herbalism, but you have family members who are resistant, you know, because they're stubborn, like my husband, <laughs> or maybe they're a kid and they're suspicious, you know, naturally mm-hmm. suspicious children. <laughs> um, you know, I, like I'll I'll make something like a, like a tincture. And I'll be like, you know, this, this herb is really good for what's ailing you right now. Maybe you could just put a little bit of it, you know, in what you're drinking. Mm-hmm. And, and he runs from me, flees <laughs> and hides and, you know, like a cat at bath time, Eric can't be found. <laughs> he does not want to, he does not want to, to uh, take my odd herbal concoctions. <laughs> but, um, you know, same with salves, like, oh, you have a wound, let me salve you. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> but, um, you know, the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, right? So exactly. if, if that is hidden in something sugary, that makes a really nice, goes really nice with sparkly water, makes a fun cocktail, mm-hmm. then <clears throat> us sly wildcrafters can get our loved ones to to take some herbal medicine once in a while. Would you would you take my stuff if I made cocktails for you? Certainly. Well, <laughs> Emily made the cocktails because you don't you you think I might poison you? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what this is coming down to. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I experienced the same thing with my husband. You know, he's he's um, I'm chasing him after him. You know, with a salve or a t-shirt or something. And I'm like, I'm like, this is a cure. But um, yeah, you know, there's a whole chapter on sodas in the book, which I pretty much um, started um, exploring the world of sodas because um, Gregory was so interested in, or you know, he was a big soda fiend. Um, so I was looking for for ways to make those healthier. You know, just or more seasonal, more interesting for him. And in the process, you know, started 
realizing that I could like soda too, you know, just not the commercial kind. Yeah, it is nice to think about those moments. Like, you know, Coke is the same every day of the year, <laughs> you know, and it has, a, it, that's an, it's a really interesting sort of, well, I don't know, just place to meditate on a bit, like the mm-hmm. sameness, which yeah. has a lot to do with our consumer culture mm-hmm. and our built environment, which is all about um, consistency and sameness, you know, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, instead, like you just said, you can, you can really appreciate the change of the seasons or remember last summer or, exactly. you know, things like that in, in the, pro- the simple, simple act of just having a nice fizzy beverage. Right. Right. You know, that's really lovely that you can, you can bring in those aspects of nature and, and the changeability of nature into your day to day life. Do you want to say, we back up a little bit here and uh, we actually, you, we forgot to mention flowers. You have some recipes involving using, using flowers. Yes. Oh, like roses. Yeah. yeah. Like roses. Yeah. There are um, a couple of recipes using roses in the book and roses are a fun one because, um, you know, again, it's something that a lot of people have access to, you know, whether they're wild roses or just the roses in your garden, your mate in your neighbor's garden. Um, and all roses are edible. Um, so really, um, the two things you want to, um, look at before you, you use a rose, um, for eating or for drinks are, um, is it fragrant? Um, because there's really no point in using it if it, you know, it doesn't have that fragrance and, uh, has it been sprayed, um, with chemicals or pesticides? So, you know, that's really important. You don't want to, you, know, you don't want roses yeah. growing in the meth labs. Steve, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> from the front yard of the meth lab. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, otherwise, um, so, you know, whether you're growing it or you find it in the wild or, you know, just, just ask your neighbors, you know, like, you know, if you can, um, harvest some, some rose petals or the, the hips too, those can be used, um. So the, yeah, use roses, you can make, uh, different like liqueurs and, and those kinds of things with the, with the roses, as well as I have a recipe for making your own, um, rose water. So you're, um, kind of doing like a little, um, easy distillation on the stovetop and then you can use that rose water and and all kinds of different drinks. Easy distillation as opposed to difficult distillation. (laughs) You want to say something about that easy? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Really? I mean, all you need is, uh, is a good, you know, deep pot. Uh, and like a couple of little bowls and, um, you're, you know, you're putting your, um, your rose petals or you can do this with other, other herbs. You could do chamomile or, uh, lavender, even like honeysuckle flowers, um, anything, um, in there with some water and you're, um, basically bringing that to a boil and it's catching, um, the steam, um, and, um, making this really beautiful, fragrant, uh, water that you can use. Actually, you just said honeysuckle and it reminded me of your book. You have, There's also a honeysuckle recipe, which I think people might be fascinated with. A lot of people have honeysuckle uh, either growing in their yard or in their neighborhood. It's hard to miss when yeah. it's blooming. <laughs> <laughs> you can smell it like a mile away yeah. and seek it out. Um, uh, what, what do you do with honeysuckle flowers? Yeah, like you said, I mean, it's one of those things that's just so fragrant. And it's like, how can I capture this? You know, so you... Um, yeah, I, you know, grew up as a kid just kind of like eating or, you know, sucking the nectar out of the individual um, honeysuckle flowers. But if, you know, you want to capture it in a little bit of a, a larger <laughs> bottle of it, a larger quantity, um, you can, again, make a syrup from the um, the honeysuckle flowers. And this is another process that you can use um, with other flowers is basically you're going to um, harvest the flowers and then pour boiling water over them and, um, make like a, like a strong tea. Um, and depending on, on the flowers, uh, you know, might take a couple hours or maybe a day. Um, you just let them steep in there until the, um, you have this, you know, really fragrant tea and, um, strain that out. And then you can combine that liquid with sugar or honey and, and make a great syrup with it. 
And it carries the, fr- the fragrance of the flowers. Right. The, yeah. Really and unique. honeysuckle is, you know, it's subtle. So um, if you're using it um, in another drink, you don't want to overpower it, you know, with a lot of other flavors. Um, but it's just, it's really lovely. And it's, uh, and it's also medicinal. Yeah. That's another one that's uh, long been used um, for, for cold and flu. Oh, and oh, and I just remembered that. Uh, and a note on that recipe is that you can do the same thing with nasturtium flowers to make a peppery. Yes, you know. and especially here in, in, in LA, we have so many. You We're know, drowning wild. Nasturtium. <laughs> nasturtium, I know it's so. funny when I think about it in other places. It's like a very precious sort of uh, exotic that's mm-hmm. tended carefully. Yeah, in beds. and like we we fight an ongoing battle to keep it from swallowing our entire right. backyard so every like, year. What can I? So you know, you're you're you know, <laughs> cutting is, it back, but you can make like, something with it with too this? at the same yeah. time. So yeah, you can use the same process with with nasturtium. We're getting near the end of our time. Uh, One thing I did want to ask you about is a lot of people have concerns about sugar. So are there recipes Mm -hmm. here that you would recommend for people that want to avoid sugar or ways to avoid sugar? Yes, definitely. Um, I personally um, avoid sugar in most of my my food and drinks, so I'm really mindful of that. Um, In the the book, there are recipes that that do use sugar or a lot of recipes use honey. um, And... For the most part, you can use either one. Um, sometimes, if if you want a drink that's more um, has a, a maybe a more neutral sweetness or um, or a clearer color, then you would use sugar. But otherwise, you can almost always use honey. You can use other type. You know, it doesn't have to be your refined white sugar. You can use um, other types of of unrefined brown sugars, and um, you can use coconut sugar, molasses, maple syrup. There's pretty much all you know all other types types of sweeteners that you can use to your own your own preference the other thing about uh about limiting sugar in these recipes is that i guess we have to remember that you know if you're making a a sparkly drink with a little bit of uh, sugar syrup in it that has like a lot less sugar overall in it than a soda any kind of commercial product that you would buy i mean it's it's astounding how much sugar they pack into those commercial products. I mean, that Coke has how, what was like eleven teaspoons of sugar yeah, in a glass or something, a can or something so. like that. Um, and I, I and then there's all those artisanal kind of fancy sodas that are expensive mm-hmm. that you can buy. But I suspect they're just a sugar it's packed. Still sugar, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so if you're just using like say a, a tablespoon of sugar syrup in your glass of sparkly water, you're still a long way ahead. Right, right. It's going to be a lot, a lot less. Yeah. Well, do you want to say something about where people can find the book and in a way that supports you the best? I know sometimes, <laughs> are you selling it through a website or? Um, so yeah, the Wild Drinks and Cocktails, um, it's available anywhere books are sold. So um, you can you know go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local independent store. Um, if you, um, I'm not selling it myself, but if you go to my website, emilyhan.com, then there are links um, to all the different places where you can buy it. And are you teaching any classes coming up? Yes, um, I have um, this fall. I'm teaching. Um, I have a bitters class and um, teaching um, some other like herbal cocktail classes. Um, I'll probably do another um, drinking vinegars class. I also have one on making um, liqueurs that you can give as, as holiday gifts. You know, we have the holidays coming up, so a lot of these are, are really fun things that you can make for other people. Um, you know, as a gift or you know, at a party or something. And that, that well, people can find out about that on your website. I yes. Assume. Is yes. there a Facebook too? Um, yes, I do have um, Facebook page um, Emily Hahn. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Emily. It's, we love the book, and we wish you the very best of luck with it. Thank you so much. That was Emily Hahn. If you'd like a chance to win a copy of the book, please send an email to rootsimple at gmail.com. That's rootsimple at gmail.com. 
with the words wild drink in the subject line. We'll pick a winner at random, and the deadline to enter is November 8th, 2015. If you'd like more info on our guest, you can check out her website, emilyhan.com. If you like this show, please share it with a friend via email or social media. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple Podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.